Welcome to Percolating Perspective Podcast, the podcast that offers you some perspective on America. I'm your host, Gordon Michael Porter. Thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to yet another episode of Percolating Perspective. We have got a very exciting and hopeful and encouraging show for you today. I'm going to show you a few things about America's history and America's past and specifically America's foundation that I think will really give you hope. It definitely gave me hope doing the research for it. Uh, don't forget May 1st. We only have, I believe, two weeks left. May 1st, the name of the show is going to change to Brood in America. Uh, reason we're doing this, as I've mentioned on other episodes, the reason we're doing this is for advertising purposes and to get this show in front of more people like yourself that love coffee, that love America. Whenever you're Googling, you know, America shows or podcasts about America, the last thing that's going to come up is a title called Percolating Perspective. And we recognize that. And we want to get this podcast in front of many, many, many others. You guys have made it grow by leaps and bounds with the flaws that it has. And I thank you for that. And I appreciate you for doing that. But we're going to put this show on the map and we're going to get more people involved. And we are going to get America back on the right track and help her to remember where she came from because she is she is feeding the hogs and sleeping with the hogs and feeding the hogs um, out in the barn with the prodigal son. So we're going to get her back in and get her back where she needs to be. But first, the drip of the day. So today's drip, I'm actually, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm drinking out of my Yeti mug with my nice Glock sticker on it, which is my favorite mug. It's a, a big one, it's a big Yeti, but that's okay. Today's roast comes from the Appalachian Mountains out of North Carolina, and specifically out of a town, I'm trying to remember the name of the town, Hollingsworth, North Carolina, I believe. Um, anyway, it's up in the Appalachian Mountains, and uh, this roast is called the Creation Roast, and it is a wonderful breakfast roast. It's, it's not very... Um, bold, but it, as, this, as the bag describes itself, it's a very clean and it's a very crisp flavor. Um, and it, unlike several of the coffees we've had in the past several weeks, it is not a lot of acid. It doesn't have a lot of citrus to it. This is more of a floral flavor. It's a little bit more earthy. So it's, you know, it's a, it, you know, creation kind of to me that kind of goes back to the creation of the earth. I don't know if that's what they intended it to be or not, but whenever I'm thinking creation, I'm thinking flowers, I'm thinking fresh grass, I'm thinking earth, I'm thinking dirt. And, you know, it, while it does not taste like any of those things, it does taste very floral. It does, it is very aromatic. And so they don't add any flavors to it. Um, the beans come from, I believe, Guatemala. And, you know, it's a, it, it's a single source coffee and it is a wonderful cup of coffee. It smells, it smells amazing. Um, it is, you have to be careful when you're grinding it because it is a little bit of a more, it's a less dense bean. It's a little softer. So when you're putting it in the grinder, it does not take long at all for it to get to a medium or a fine grind. So you have to be careful of that. Um, you know, I know my coffee grinder, there's just three settings. There's coarse, there's medium, and there's fine. If you put this on the medium setting, you're more than likely going to get a fine roast. Uh, but uh, yeah, when you're brewing it, it's a delicious 
delicious smelling coffee. It fills the house. Um, of course, most coffees do, but this one is just different. I don't know how to explain it. It's something that you're going to have to go take a look at and purchase. Um, this one is, again, Appalachian Coffee Roasters. This is the Creation Roast. This is a light to medium blend and something that will really, really be good for you in the mornings. Uh, get your day moving and not be you know, burning the back of your throat with a dark roast. So check that out. AppalachianCoffeeRoasters.com Now, today we're going to go back to America's foundation and really examine it and the reason why I will get to towards the end of the podcast. But I want to, first of all, recognize America's foundation and examine it. Um, Many of our episodes, we've talked about the cornerstones. We've talked about uh, pieces of the foundation, but I don't think we've ever really gone over and examined what is the true foundation of the United States as we know it, or as, you know, America as we know it. Well, funny enough, this podcast is not the first person or the first entity to ask that question. Back in 1818, a man by the name of Guy Niles uh, was trying to write a textbook, and he was going around to the founding fathers who at this point were still alive, a lot of them, uh, those that made it through the American Revolution uh, alive, and he is writing a textbook to let the future generations know exactly what happened in the American founding. Um, You can get copies of this book. It's tough to find, but uh, it is written by Guy Niles, and I believe it's just called The American Founding. Um, But he goes to John Adams, uh, and he asks John Adams, hey, who is responsible for the American Revolution? Who is responsible for, in your opinion, John Adams, who do we need to look to to emulate uh, who, who, in your opinion, is responsible for bringing the American Revolution, Revolution to fruition? Well, he gives five names. He gives one, uh, Reverend Jonah Mayhew, uh, George Whitfield, Reverend Charles uh, Chauncey, Clauncey? My handwriting's bad. Chauncey. 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 Reverend Charles Chauncey, Reverend Samuel Cooper, and Harry Hoosier. Now, Of all these five, there is something in common. One of them, the first thing that's in common, you might say, in my opinion, you've probably never heard of any of these guys. So to say that these five are the ones that are responsible for the American Revolution is kind of shocking. And that's big language coming from John Adams. But these five uh, unknowns, you might say, are what John Adams credits for bringing freedom to the world, or to the United States, rather. Um... Now, the other thing that these five have in common, you'll notice I said reverend three times, and you'll notice that I just called them by their first name twice. Now, all that means is a few of these are Methodist or Presbyterian. But of these five, all five of them are preachers. Jonah Mayhew, George Whitfield, Charles Chauncey, Samuel Cooper, and Harry Hoosier. Now, that's pretty incredible that John Adams, in his opinion, the five people that are most, um, the most, uh, you know, responsible, the most credible for the founding of the American way of life for the American Revolution is five preachers. That's pretty incredible. Now, the last one I think is interesting Harry Hoosier. Um, Benjamin Rush, who is another founding father, mentioned in a letter that he, meaning Harry Hoosier, was the greatest orator that he had ever heard. Now, keep in mind, you're, we're talking about 
you know, Benjamin Rush has heard people like, well, John Adams. He's heard people like Patrick Henry. Uh, he's heard people like George Whitfield, uh, who, by the way, George Whitfield, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin was very close to. Um, and at one point uh, in George Whitfield's career as a preacher, Benjamin Franklin, of course, being the the expender, uh, experimenter, the inventor that he was, he decided he was going to go to a Whitfield event where he was preaching, and he was going to see just how far Whitfield could preach, and or how far away you could stand from Whitfield while he was preaching and still be able to understand what he was saying. And so he, what he would do is he would start, you know, relatively close and then slowly back out of the crowd to the point where he could not hear him and then would step forward a few feet. And then he would walk in a semicircle around Whitfield to make sure that he had his perimeter correct. And it was something like, it was like, I don't even know, it was like 500, 600 feet. It was over a football field long that you could audibly hear and understand what George Whitfield was saying without. They didn't have any microphones or anything like that. I mean, this was just audible, booming George Whitfield. So for Benjamin Rush to say that Harry Hoosier was the greatest orator he's ever heard, that's pretty high praise, given who all Benjamin Rush had heard. Um, have you ever heard of Harry Hoosier? Well, you've probably heard his last name, but not his first name. If you've ever heard of a Hoosier, generally speaking, we think of people who are from the great state of Indiana. Well, Harry Hoosier was a black evangelist, and Hoosier did not want to preach uh, where everyone everyone else was preaching. He wanted to go to the untamed Wild West to preach to the savages in Indiana. Now uh, is not anywhere close to being the wild, untamed West. Now it's kind of Midwest, but back then this was untamed wilderness full of savage Indians. And that's where Harry Hoosier wanted to be. He knew that the New England states were, you know, they were well-serviced as far as, you know, ministers and preachers and things like that. And he wanted to go out. He was one of America's first missionaries, was Harry Hoosier, a black evangelist. And so now, you know, we think of the Hoosiers being the Hoosier state. The reason for that is he made it all the way to Indiana as people were getting saved and getting their lives right. And then their friends would say, well, what in the world's wrong with him? Why is he acting so different? They'd say, well... I think he's one of those Hoosier guys. So, if you're from Indiana, that's where you get your name, as a black evangelist from the 1700s. So, why would John Adams say that five preachers were responsible for the revolution? Well, we've gone back uh, to another episode we did very early on, the first episode on the Declaration of Independence. There's two parts to that. But in that episode, we talked about six principles that are in the very first two paragraphs uh, of the Declaration of Independence. And in those first two paragraphs, there are six principles. Um, now, every clause in the Constitution, including the first ten amendments, which we call the Bill of Rights, points back and goes back and affirms each one of these six principles. Now, uh, go back and listen to that episode for those six principles. There are several, I mean, like we just said, there are six of them, and we go into detail on that. And we'll do another episode on that here in the future uh, and really dive into it a little bit more because there's you know, there's only so much you can say in a 30-minute podcast. But, um, you know, many historians have affirmed that every single right uh, stood forth in the, con- in, declaration was, in the Declaration was preached before 1763 in American pulpits. Uh, that means the Declaration really is nothing more than you know a bunch of sermons that were compiled together that people had been hearing for decades at this point. 
you know, the principles about all men are created equal and, you know, that government has a place and it's not between man and God, all these concepts were very, very new and revolutionary ideas. But they did not come from the founders in the in the sense of you don't have George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and John Adams sitting around thinking about new ideas. These were ideas preached from America's pulpits. The reason that the pilgrims came here in the first place was for freedom from religious persecution. And so you have essentially a hundred years here of people going through and studying and analyzing, is this the right thing to do? Is this the wrong thing to do? And what they came to was not only not only is it the right thing to do, but they listed them out. Here are what makes, uh, you know, here is the, the truth about um, the, the place of government and things that they must do, things they absolutely can never do. And all of those, uh, you know, rights, principles, whatever you want to call them, all of those things were preached in America's pulpits before 1763. Uh, now, the first meeting of the Founding Fathers was in September 6th of 1774. They opened with a prayer, and the prayer service, just the prayer service, lasted two hours. They had never met. So you have to keep in mind, this is, this is something that uh, was part of all of their lives. They came from Georgia. The people from Georgia did not know the guys from New York. The people from New York probably didn't know the people from Pennsylvania or Rhode Island, for example. And so the first two hours that they have to spend together, they spend their time in prayer trying to you know, get the right spirit. Now, John Adams, in this meeting, writes a letter to Abigail Adams and says, the Lord showed us something from uh, something terrific out of Psalm 35. Now, you need to go and read Psalm 35, and it's really incredible, because what Psalm 35 is talking about is oppression from a government. It's amazing. It's really amazing. But he tells Abigail to read it and informs her that they have instituted a continental-wide fast. And he says, Abigail, can you imagine, this is in a letter, Abigail, can you imagine having three million people fasting on their knees in prayer? Now, this was the first national call to fast and prayer in the U.S. done by Continental Congress uh, in September 6th. Now, a few months later, the Founding Fathers are reviewing the minutes and realize that their prayers had been answered. And, as a result of that, the Founding Fathers instituted a day of thanksgiving. Five to six months later, after that day of thanksgiving, times get tough again, and they institute another fast, another period of fasting and prayer. Then, five to six months later, they go back, realize their prayers had been answered, and they institute another day of thanksgiving. Fifteen times this happens at the at, you know in the Continental Congress, and then by you know all through the American Revolution, this is going on all through you know the 1790s once the U.S. Constitution is signed, and by 1815, if you are including the Continental Congress and the U.S. Congress, by 1815 we had over 1,400 national proclamations to uh, to days of prayer and fasting. We were prayer was our thing. And getting, getting in tune with God was our thing. That was our jam, was getting, you know, we recognize, hey, we've got some real problems as a country. We take them to the Lord in prayer. We fast about it. We get that stuff right. And then we go back and say, hey, the Lord answered our prayer. And then we have a day of thanksgiving to bring that to him. The government was spiritual. It did not govern in the spiritual world, but the government was spiritual. It was Christian. Now, uh, Moses and Aaron, 
you know, for example, you have uh, Moses, who is a spiritual leader in the world. I'm sorry, Moses was the secular leader in the world. He was the government leader in the world. And then you have Aaron, who was the spiritual leader. He was the high priest. You have two different things going on. Now, would anyone dare say that Moses was not a spiritual person or governed in a spiritual way? Absolutely not. That blueprint comes from the Bible, that that blueprint of governing a nation in a Christian way while not governing religion, uh, you know, and governing spiritual things, that's a very clear uh, pattern in the Old Testament in particular. The Library of Congress has documents and letters where the King of England was telling the colonies who could and could not take communion. Okay, that is the wrong church and state. That is what the the founders were fighting. And now you fast forward to 2023, we have the opposite where now people are saying, well, the government doesn't have, you know, the Christianity should not be in government and those pig Christians should have no role in government. Well, I'm sorry, you're wrong. America's government is Christian, and if anybody has a right to get involved in government and get get things going to where they need to be going, it is Christians. And not only is it a right, you have a duty and a responsibility as a Christian to get involved, to vote, but I'll take it one step further. You have a duty and a responsibility to run for public office, whether that's locally, whether that's at the state level or at the federal level. You have a responsibility to make sure that if you are not, even if you're not running for office, you better be sure that you are involved, you know who you're voting for. For, and you better be sure that you know where they stand on the issues because you have a God-given right and a responsibility to make sure you are involved in government. Now, where the idea of the separation of church and state comes from, um, I will give anybody $1,000 if they can go to the Constitution and they can find where the, the, the phrase, the separation of church and state exists. It does not exist in the Constitution. Everybody points to that and says, "Well, see, it's a, it's a separation of church and state. You can't, you can't have uh, Christianity and government." Okay. Well, that's not at all what the founders thought. In fact, where they get that was Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to his, I believe, it was his cousin or his nephew. And in that, he uses the term, the separation of church and state. You can look this letter up, Google it. In that letter, what he is saying is exactly what the founders thought. Being he was founder, I would think he would know, but what they thought was that government has no role in spiritual matters, meaning has no role in governing the church. Now, he did not, what he did not mean by that was the opposite, which was that the church has no role in operating government. He absolutely thought that. And before you start throwing, again, tomatoes at your radio, as I said last week, uh, Thomas Jefferson, everybody says, oh, he was an atheist and he wasn't a Christian. He, in fact, he probably was, you know, he was probably an atheist. At the best, he was a deist. Okay. Well, uh, everybody points to the Jefferson Bible for that. However, they don't point to which one. There were two Jefferson Bibles. Uh, one Bible was, uh, he, everybody says, well, he cut out the stuff he didn't like. No, he didn't. What he did was he cut out the what we would call the red letters of Jesus Christ. The reason he did that is he took what he cut out and pasted it into a book, and he gave it to a print shop. And what the print shop did was essentially take Thomas Jefferson's work, where he had cut that Bible up and pasted it on paper, and he developed the first gospel tract in which 
the missionaries that were in New England would take to the wild, wild west to the savage Indians in Indiana, and they would take those tracts, the red letters of Christ, and give them to the savage Indians to teach them the ways of Christianity. Thomas Jefferson knew if you were to get give just give them a Bible, they're going to get bogged down in the in the genealogies and all this sort of stuff, and they're not going to understand what Christianity is all about. So give them directly with the words of Jesus Christ said, and then once they get a hold of Jesus Christ, then we'll start teaching them the Bible. But you cannot start off with the genealogies. Thomas Jefferson knew that. How did he know that? Why was he interested? Was it because he was an atheist? Was it because he was a deist and believed that God just created the world and backed away and left it alone to its own devices? No. Several years later, his gr- I think it was his grandson or his great-grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph stumbled across one of these Bibles. The one I just mentioned was the first Bible. The second was another one uh, that he had cut up that the Smithsonian calls the, you know, the Thomas Jefferson Bible and claims that Thomas Jefferson cut up the things that he didn't like. The Smithsonian says that. What Thomas Jefferson actually did was take the Bible and he took the things that he What Thomas Jefferson actually did was create a book using all the things that Christ didn't say and just followed the, you know, the patterns of Christ's life, and he developed a book called The Life and Morals of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, I actually have this book on my phone. You can get it from Apple Books, actually. Uh, You can get it from Audible. You can download it on your Kindle. You can also order a copy on Amazon. Um, This book was, uh, or this, I guess, work, you would call it, was discovered by Thomas Jefferson Randolph, uh, his grandson. And he, Thomas Jefferson Randolph thought, hey, this is fantastic. This is great. What we need to do is we need to take what my grandfather put together, we need to make a book out of that, and we need to give that to Congress. And we need to have Congress, every freshman member of Congress, whenever they come in, they need to be able to uh, read this and see that, you know, what, you know, how to stay out of trouble and how to keep your nose clean while in Congress. And so what happened? They did that. Every freshman member, up until I believe it was around 1960, every freshman member got a book uh, from the from the Congress, from the House of Congress, you might say, got a book called The Life and Morals of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that was put together by Thomas Jefferson himself to keep congressional members' nose clean while in government, how not to be bribed, how not to be uh, taken into sin. Boy, What a difference Washington, D.C. would be if we had that now. Why they ever took that out, I will never know. Actually, I do know, and you do too. But point being, Thomas Jefferson uh, put all this stuff together. He was not uh, an atheist at all. Uh, back in the American Revolution, if you were, uh, if you were neighbors uh, signed up to get involved, they would be called a colonel. Uh, if, in other words, so if I, you know, uh, in, in the state of Florida, if I were to get 100 or even 20 neighbors to sign up to be uh, in the Continental Army, I would be their colonel. That's how it worked back then. And so, uh, you know, we had a colonel uh, who got a little bit gun happy and got his... Uh, band of believers together, you might say. And John Adams said uh, that one of these colonels 
got onto a effectively a canoe with a couple of cannons on it, um, and they went out into the Atlantic Ocean and took over a 20-gun British man-of-war uh, with a, a what was called the Gunboat Philadelphia. And you can go look online. You can go type in Google the Gunboat Philadelphia. This was our Navy at the time. And this colonel and his ragtag band of neighbors, essentially farmers, took over the Gunboat Philadelphia, or I'm sorry, with the Gunboat Philadelphia, took over a 20-gun man-of-war uh, and brought that into uh, brought in, in as a prisoner of war. Now, that's incredible, and it's even more incredible when you see the pictures of the gunboat Philadelphia. Gordon, why does that matter? Uh, well, that is just another evidence that God's hand is all over the American founding. Adams, uh, John Adams, later writes uh, again to Abigail while in Philadelphia and says that after these reports, meaning about the gunboat Philadelphia, and this is a quote, I believe the eternal Son of God is operating against the British Army. No other way to explain it. Uh, then also, George Washington, years later in 1778, Washington writes to his dear friend, General Thomas Nelson, and says, quote, The hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all of this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith, and worse than wicked that hath not gratitude to acknowledge his obligations. Uh, Washington says, you're just flat out wicked and godless if you don't feel the need to thank God after going through the American Revolution. Um, have you ever heard of Roger Sherman? Probably not. Uh, he is the only person, the only founder to have signed the Declaration, the Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, and the Continental Association, all for what we would call founding documents. Some of those were rendered null and void by the, uh, by the U.S. Constitution. But nevertheless, Roger Sherman is the only founder that signed all four of those documents. Roger Sherman is the guy that gave us the idea for the bicameral Congress, the House and the Senate. He's the man who gave us the Electoral College. Uh, he was a theologian. He was a professor of divinity at Yale University back when Yale was not a cesspool of stupidity. Ah, man, I love coffee. He wrote the doctrinal creed for his denomination, uh, and it, he is a Supreme Court justice, one of the first. Um, in many of his works, he says, quote, this is peppered all through of his works. He says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. He also commands everyone to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and do all the things uh, do and and all these that do believe and repent shall be saved. Thomas Jefferson said uh, about Roger Sherman, he never spoke a foolish word in his life. Now, Gordon, that's a lot. You covered a lot. Several of those things without segue. What does all that mean? And why is all that important? And what does that have to do with America's foundation? Well, first of all, that, what I just gave you, is the foundation of the United States of America. And the common theme through all of that, starting with five preachers all the way to Roger Sherman, uh, you know, giving the gospel and, and no less than five works that he wrote, letters mainly, um, the foundation of the United States purely is Christianity. That is 100% the bedrock, the foundation of on which our country rests. Now, here's the hopeful part that I mentioned earlier uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the intro to our podcast. Now, 
if you're again, if you're watching on YouTube, I'll hold this up. This is a Bible I have. It's called the American Patriots Bible. And if you don't have one of these, my one of my best friends, Carl Hunter, gave me this Bible. Uh, I ran for a school board a couple of years ago, um, last year. Wow, man. <laughs> Time is flying. One week seems like a year, and five years seems like a day sometimes. This Bible is a great Bible uh, that has a lot of American history peppered through it and, and good information, but this, uh, what I'm about to bring to you that is hopeful, is not uh, necessarily just in this Bible. It's in any King James Bible uh, and probably other versions too, but I use the King James for several reasons, but one of which, not the least of which, is that what, that's what the founders used. That's where they got the truth that they built our country on was the King James Bible. Um, <clears throat> but where the hope comes in. If you were to look in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45, we'll start there. It says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For the abundance of the heart with his mouth speaketh. So let's stop there for a second. There's people that claim that the founders are atheists and deists. In fact, there are more people that claim that they're atheists and deists than claim that they were just straight-up God-fearing Christians. Okay, so let's just say everybody that listens to this podcast, we believe that the Bible is infallible and is the true Word of God. Based off that verse, let's just read that again. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil which uh, uh, treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Do not waste your time going to read what historians had to say about the founders. Go read what the founders had to say. There are so many handwritten works that the founders wrote, whether that's letters, whether that's just the works that we have, like the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the Federalist Papers. You don't have to worry or wonder what the founders thought about God or Christianity. They will tell you. Don't let some egghead from now the modern-day Yale University try to tell you they were not anything but sold-out Christians, because that's exactly what they were. Moving on. That wasn't the hopeful part. That was just a rantful part. Verse 46 says, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. Verse 48, here's the hopeful part, 48 and 49. He is like a man which buildeth a house and diggeth deep, dig deep, and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now here's the hopeful part. What the Bible just said is if you have a strong foundation, you will weather any storm, you will weather the stream that beats against the house when the floodwaters come. America, neighbors, friends, we 100% are in a storm right now. 100% are in a storm. We are going through one of the most difficult floods of this country's life. Whether that's just a complete, just a complete idiocy of the transgender ideology, of communism, of abortion, we are going through 100% one of the worst storms this country has faced. Not the worst, 
but one of the worst. I would say the Civil War was, without a doubt, the worst storm that the United States ever went through. And we made it. We made it through. Isn't that interesting? Well, why is that? Well, I don't know if you've ever tried to take the foundation out from underneath the house and put a new one in its place, but it's impossible. It's impossible, usually, unless under rare circumstances it's possible. You don't just take the foundation out from under a house and put a new foundation under it. If you can do it, it's extraordinarily difficult. But my point that I'm trying to make here is the United States Foundation has not moved. The foundation is the foundation. You cannot take the foundation out and throw it away. The house on top can fall. It can rot. It can leak. It can take some damage from the stream that's beating, or the flood that's beating across the house. Absolutely, it will take on damage. Absolutely, it will take on water. Absolutely, after the flood, you'll have to muck the house out and take all the drywall, all of the insulation out, all the appliances, all the cabinets, all the carpet, all the furniture. Everything's got to go. It's got to be tossed in the dump. The house has got to be, you know, you've got to put no less than five dehumidifiers to dry the framing out, and then you've got to put everything back in place. Absolutely, that's going to have to happen. The foundation will not move. The United States Foundation hasn't moved. We have had floodwaters rising for 50 years. Some of the worst floodwaters that we've seen. Actually, probably more like 100 years. The hope that you should have is that we make it. The encouragement that you should have is that when this storm passes... There will be freedom again like we have never seen in this country. When all this stuff passes, we will know we still have a strong and sure foundation that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the Bible, that is Christianity. We will now know how to build on that foundation an even stronger house. Our foundation is strong. Our foundation is unmovable. And that should really give you hope. As a country, that should give you hope. Because that means we make it. As a Christian nation, not even just as human beings, yes, we will survive. Of course we'll survive. But the world as we knew it for 200 years, really 400 years before let's say the 1917, 1900, the world as we knew it before then will come back. Uh, A man by the name of Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem back in the 1920s, and the title of the poem was The Gods of the Copybook Headings. And the idea of the poem was that that the the gods of the copybook headings, copybooks were, you know, something that kids would use in elementary school. They would use to write down and you, craft their penmanship and get it right. They were truths, like the sky is blue, water will wet, fire will burn. Those were eternal truths that always have been, always will be true. And they would copy those down just because they were truths. They were there and they would copy those down to get their penmanship right. Rudyard Kipling's poem says that with fire and terror, the gods of the copybook headings return. That's the way the poem ends. 
that talks about how the gods of the copybook headings are torn down and that they will always return, but with fire and terror they return. Now, what does that mean? That means that what I hope right now is the fire and terror. It could be that it gets worse than what we're going through right now. It could be. But the end of that poem says the gods of the copybook headings do return. Do you realize that in 20 years from now, 2043, people are going to look back at this time right now and say, who, why, who in their right mind would ever think there's more than two genders? That's insane. Who in their right mind would ever think that killing a human being in the womb would be okay and not a, monst- a monstrous thing to do? Do you realize that just the technology we have right now, we know that, that a heartbeat is detectable at 18 weeks, sometimes, in some cases six weeks. Imagine what the technology is going to be like in, in, in 20 years from now. Just with, I know a lot of people are running with their hair on fire, scared of artificial intelligence. If you don't think artificial intelligence is going to know that at six weeks that that's human life, possibly even before then that that's a human life, you're mistaken. 20 years from now, people, and that's not a long time, 20 years from now, that was, guys, the Twin Towers fell 20 years ago. I believe that in 20 years from now, the gods of the copybook headings are going to return. And I have my reasons for believing that specific timeline. And I think, you know, just to kind of show you the man behind the curtain a little bit, there's what's called the Kondratiev wave. It's a marketing cycle that proves to be true decade after decade. And that's, you know, it's just a theory. It may not be 20 years, might be 40, 50, I don't know. But I do know that truth is going to return. It always does. The Civil War, we were having an argument about whether or not, you know, black Americans were human beings. A hundred years later, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and even to today, we look back and say, how on earth could you possibly think that black Americans were not human beings? Back then, that was an honest debate. And I don't mean that to say that anybody today thinks that's an honest debate. I mean, back then, in their time, they literally debated over whether or not black Americans were human beings. Now, we obviously know that's 100% ridiculous. But that's hindsight. Much like now, with transgenderism and abortion, we that still hold on to the truth, much as people in the Civil War, there were plenty of people, half the country did, there is still half the country today that believes that all this is idiocy and nonsense and just absolute crazy. 50 years from now, 60 years from now, I would say at the longest the entire country is going to look back and say, oh boy, that was horrible. What were we thinking? Two genders is the truth. That is a human being in the womb at six weeks. All this to say, the Bible, Jesus Christ, they, in your personal life, can give you hope. If you choose to accept that hope. But on a national level, it can offer you hope too. And what we just read is that a foundation, if built right and built on the right things, 
is immovable and undamageable. And the first half of this podcast, we went in length over the foundation of the United States. And I will say, yes, it was at length. Just this podcast, what we did this morning, was not even scratching the surface. It was a 30,000-foot view looking down at the surface. We didn't even touch the surface. You need to go to wallbuilders.com. There's hundreds of other resources, but wallbuilders is a great one. Wallbuilders alone has over, I think it's like over a quarter of a million handwritten documents from the founders from before 18, I think 1820. There's plenty out there. You just got to look. You got to be hungry for it. The foundation is there, whether whether we like it or not. Whether the the liberal progressives, the far left, the the aggressive militant left, whether they like it or not, the foundation is the foundation. And they can burn the house down, but they cannot burn down the foundation. They can burn the house down, and they will leave when there is no benefit to living here anymore. Possibly, and hopefully, much much sooner than that. But worst case scenario. The country falls apart. Worst case scenario, the country falls apart, the liberals leave or can't survive because of their stupidity. But our foundation remains intact. The reason for this podcast is to make sure that we remember that. That we remember our foundation. That we are able to dust off the ashes and see that there is a foundation laying down there that is just as strong as it was built in 1620. America, I love you. I firmly believe that you are the last best hope for freedom and liberty in the world. I believe that you are going through one of the worst storms this country has ever faced. But I also believe, just as we made it out of the Civil War better than we went into it, I believe we will do the same now. America, you are a remarkable place. With a, You are a remarkable people. And I'm not the only one who thought that. Alexis de Tocqueville thought that. Irving Berlin thought that. Ronald Reagan thought that. You are an amazing place. And you should have hope in your foundation. You should have trust that the foundation, which is God and Christianity, you should have hope that that survive, not only survives in the end, but our country survives in the end because of that. Our country survives because our founders built one amazing foundation. With that... I leave you with it. Don't forget, Appalachian Coffee Roasters, the creation roast. Until next week, America, God bless you. God bless your foundation. God bless America. Take care.